to really grow, you need to stretch. You need to travel all over the world to see all these different cultures and how they look at life, which is radically different than your mother culture. So you never know who your teacher's gonna be. It's not polluted by makeup and fancy dresses. It's nurtured by these wonderful glowing smiles. If we're inspired, then we're alive. I got to train under the very best coach in the world who was into nurturing character first. Welcome to the People Around Town Community Podcast. I'm your host, Paul Michael Cropper, and I'm really happy to bring you this podcast. My purpose is to connect with people from all backgrounds and let them share a little of their story. Everyone has a story to tell. Everyone has life worth living. And we can all create more joy in our lives. I want to hear other stories so we can learn from each other. If you are interested in sharing about yourself, please go to peoplearoundtown.com and send me a message. We're at Anini Beach and it's after dark and there's a nice lap of the surf after a big storm, so it's nice and peaceful. Yeah, and I'm here with Jay. Uh, we've been camping here for a few days now, huh? Yes. We've had some big thunder and lightning excitements and now some nice gentle peace. Yeah, it's really quiet, really peaceful. How often do you come here, Jay? About once a year. I retired some years ago and just travel around the world each year. And I find Kauai to be very healing, very peaceful for me. Each person finds their own serenity in different places. But Kauai has definitely been that place for me. You've shared some about some beautiful places, the Kalalau Trail and the, yes. the special mm-hmm. kind of sacred feeling that has, at least before the helicopters started uh, raping it. <laughs> yeah. As my father says, there's some things you appreciate and some things you ignore. This is growing up in Seattle, and what he's talking about is ignoring all the rain. But there's a very sacred feminine energy in Hawaii, generally, and I find it most intense here on Kauai. And it's a lot of wonderful healers that are drawn here. Mm. And Kalalau Valley has, in some circles, the connotation of the Valley of Healing. And a lot of people that have been seriously mentally disturbed have gone back there and healed up. Cool. And so, if your mental world starts to collapse, that's a good place to go and just go back there and fast and just drink water and let the energy of the valley seep into you. It's harder now than it used to be because, as you mentioned, the helicopters each year seem to get more intense and then flying so low they just vibrate the ground. But there's a time in the morning and time in the evening when they're not flying. It's just wonderfully peaceful. So you have to pretty much ignore all these boats, catamarans, and rubber boats that are sitting offshore with their big lenses and snapping away rather than actually paying the price to hike 11 miles through the mud in winter. <laughs> just that hike just cleans your soul, you know, and it's, it's not easy, especially the first time in. But once you know where you're going, you're just kind of a little kid on Christmas. You know where you're headed for, <laughs> and it's so beautiful. 
So it's awesome. How many yeah. times have you done that? Mm, maybe a hundred. Wow. I first, but it just kind of disappears into memory. You know, yeah. it's just so many times and so many great times. Yeah. It's radically different now, and it's becoming much more domesticated. It was a lot wilder when I was there. And I found it much more healing because it was wilder. Mm-hmm. But now the beach is so domesticated, it looks like you're at Hanalei Bay. And okay. The old days when you had all these really nurturing souls living on the beach is gone. Okay. And so it's, it's a good lesson in that you find places in your life that are really precious to you. And you can't expect them to last indefinitely. Mm-hmm. Um, the energy of the valley will always be there but the social scenes there was a great social scene for rock climbing at Joshua Tree and as soon as they started to charge money dissipated just changed yeah and the same thing happened in Kalalau when they started charging this $20 plus to camp to camp where it used to be free the vibe changed and so um, and it just went downhill as far as the social life went. Yeah. But as far as just the island of Kauai, it has this very deep sense of feminine energy that is very peaceful for me. So I'm interested in that. You talk about a sacred feminine mm-hmm. energy being here. Oh, mm-hmm. What does that mean to you? It means it's very nurturing. Okay. Um, my grandmother was a really wonderful healer, and she would just fill a room with joy. And so there was, everybody was family. I remember coming out of Kalalau Valley dirty and sweaty and after dark, you know, really hungry. <laughs> Big adventurous day. And having this angel voice come out of the dark saying, are you hungry? Somebody take, you know, somebody was looking after you, so always nurturing you, taking care of you. And this is kind of outside our masculine culture of, you know, I'm better than you are and I'm number one. (laughs) This is like we're all family. Yeah. And so that is far more powerful because in a masculine frame you have always this pigeonhole of I'm better than you are and I'm uh, richer, I have better education, blah, blah. Competition never stops. Whereas if you have this very intense sense of nurturing family, you're always taking care of each other. You're always helping each other grow. I tend to think that the divine masculine, similar to the divine feminine, can also be nurturing. Oh, it is. But we don't connect with that side of the divine masculine, (laughs) per se. (laughs) No, you know. You know, we get into the competition. It's the Hollywood version of the superhero. Right. Uh, he's not really there to be really kind to older people. Yeah. You know, not there to enjoy the smile of a child. You know, he's yeah. off there to make money and to try to impress. And so. Yeah, we're missing some pieces of wholeness in some of our Hollywood ideals, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, well, it's it's part of. Western culture. It doesn't matter if it's European or American or Canadian. It's, yeah. uh, you, when you travel to foreign countries like into Asia and get into a Buddhist culture, it's much mellower. Yeah. And as far as the vibe goes, New Zealand is by far the 
mellowest of all the English-speaking countries I know of, and I find it very soothing to be there. Whereas America is just plain in your face. And the good thing about America is that you have this creative energy, you know, about mm -hmm. looking outside the box. Sure. Which intimidates just pretty much the rest of the world. <laughs> you know? There are, there's, a, there's a few little hubs like in Berlin or in Lisbon where you have a lot of creative energy at the moment. Um, but, you know, San Francisco, Seattle, Seattle being an engineer's town is where you get uh, Boeing aircraft and Microsoft and yeah. these, you know, energies that respect creativity and nurture it. And that's really important to me that you have that sense of support, which I had in my family, which Bill Gates had in his. And that's pretty, it's really special about Seattle where I grew up. Mm -hmm. But if I come here, then I find this very deep sense of nurturing that my grandmother radiated, which I find very healing. That's awesome. Yeah, so. Uh, what places have you been this last year? Can you share with us? Yes, I've, my yearly circuit is to be um, in the Seattle area for Seahawk season. Okay. And I help out um, with conditioning for Nathan Hale football team, which I, I went to Nathan Hale as a student. And actually at this campground in Anini, I met the coach for Nathan Hale about seven years ago, and we started talking story about Kalalau because uh -huh. he had just taken his family back there. Cool. And we got around to where you're from, and so it turned out that uh, I went and volunteered for his team, and they're using my exercise machines. And oh, awesome. So uh, it's been... Tell me about your exercise machines. Okay, I got to train under one of the very best coaches in the world. Who in Australia. That? That's Percy Sarity. Okay. Who um, trained a whole series of world record holders at his camp in Portsea, Australia, down by Melbourne. For running? For, for running. Okay. For middle distance. Like okay. Herb Elliott, who um, had a perfect record in the mile in 1,500 meters. And his last race was in Tokyo in 1960. Okay. Where he just literally ran away up from the field, shattered the world record, and, um, and retired. You know, he just. Um, but Percy was an incredibly motivating person, but he had this idea about the gallop and relating how mammals run to how humans run. Okay. And this became my life focus, and I am absolutely fanatical about running. And it's meant that all other social frames that are normal have been always put into the back seat. Everything was focused around running. So my father, being an engineer, was very supportive and helped me build all these uh, machines that uh -huh. allowed me to have a practical understanding or empirical knowledge of how my legs would work if I was running on all fours. And so, in doing that, um, we developed a whole series of machines through the 80s, 90s, and 2000. And my father died in 2012. And some of my best memories of my dad is working on this project. Awesome. And classic moment. Just as I was working out in one of the parks in Seattle, 
one of the foremost world's engineers that worked for Teague, um, Paul just showed up and he asked with big child's eyes, like an engineer will, how does it work? <laughs> and can I try it? And so Paul donated heaps of time and energy and had this classic day where Paul and my dad and I were down at the field talking shop over the machine and the idea and background behind it. And the whole concept had brilliant engineering behind it. And I had just built the first prototypes out of scraps um, in my dad's shop and third generation is all beautifully welded up by one of Paul's friends, um, Leaf, who works for a lot of movie sets and stuff, so not intimidated by something new. And so the Hale team has been using it now for like seven years and originally designed it for the heavy one for the Seahawks, but they changed coachings and the new coaches didn't want to have anything to do with it, so it ended up at uh, my old high school. Awesome. And the really special thing about that is that um, Hoover Hopkins, um, who's the head coach who I met here, he puts his players first. He's not that, you know, he'll want to win a game, yeah, but he's much more interested in character development. And that I've been really wonderfully blessed to be able to be a part of. Cool. Because in teaching these young men who are like 16 to 18, they're much more receptive to new ideas. Mm -hmm. And I've worked in this type thing called thinking mode. And you could call it prayer, you could call it meditation, but it's this clear, quiet focus that allows you to process information. And you find this in all kinds of different frames, but within the public schools, you can't use the word prayer. You can't use the word meditation without offending somebody. But thinking mode works great, because you're at school and you're supposed to think. <laughs> okay. And it has just been wonderful. So it's helped the kids on the field, because when they do something really brilliant, then they stop and have a clear, quiet time to remember how that felt and pro program it into their muscle memory. And they use it in the classroom and for, as they work on memorizing or learning new concepts. That's cool. So they're instructed to, even in their their training to stop afterwards and to to think about it yes and to analyze what's going on inside of me how is this affecting me and how did it feel and how did it feel that's really powerful because the mind works so fast if you give it even a fraction of a second to be quiet it will program the information immensely fast compared to trying to swear every time you make a mistake okay and so yeah, I made a mistake, what can I learn from it? So just stopping and letting your mind process rather than stopping and swearing yes. is going to be more productive. Much more. That's really profound. So that's the biggest contribution I've made. As far as using the machines, um, you're, the objective is to put yourself in a prone position so that you can bring your, your strung by it like a hang glider. Okay. And you can bring your knees all the way to your chest so you can fully stretch your hamstrings. Mm. And this is very beneficial for American football because then your, the linemen explode off of a standing stance like that. 
So as far as helping the team um, physically somewhat, mentally it's been very beneficial. But as far as my own running goes, it's been great because in helping the players, they then have new ideas and have helped me immensely. And one of the nicest stories is that um, Keaton came in as a junior and he weighed 420 pounds and 6'4", wide as a truck, but serious problems with food and the mental problems of being so overweight socially. Yeah. But the harness system supported his body and one leg was longer than the other and he just naturally fell into the gallop. Oh, you mean Jay this? I couldn't do it. I could. All the studies I did, all I could do was a bound or a hop. And here was a guy who couldn't run. I mean, literally was too heavy to run. Yeah. And he's the one that's teaching me how to gallop. And within three months of studying it and looking at it and having seen an example, I was able to pick it up. And now, seven years later, I can fly. Oh, it's such a great. But I would have never lived, lived to actually experience that excitement if I hadn't been taught by somebody who could even run. So you never know who your teacher's going to be. And so if you get... Wow. The problem about being a world-class athlete is you get really, really arrogant. Mm-hmm. You know, you're only going to give respect to those people that are also in your league. Yeah. That's really dangerous. <laughs> because who's going to be your teacher? You have no idea. Yeah. Last year, there was a boy who was autistic, and a lot of the campers here at Anini were fed up with him because he was just making noise all night long. He couldn't sleep. Mm -hmm. If he's camping there, okay, on the other end of the campground. But I noticed that he had this incredible energy for part of the day. What he, you know, he could hardly sit still. He would just spring off of his feet. And I started looking at how he's using his feet and the arch of his feet, and I said, that's brilliant. (laughs) You know? slow down let me see that again you know and so I I complimented his mom you know and all she'd heard is complaints you know she was just glowingly happy that somebody actually realized (laughs) saw something that was awesome yeah (laughs) so these are two examples of people who had been totally disregarded as athletes Uh who were actually really good teachers cool and so this is something that is very humbling it was like, okay, <laughs> you think you're so great, but who are you actually going to learn from? You yeah. Know? So certainly I, I really enjoy the university outlook and the vibe in a university. It just kind of feels like home, walking into a library at a university. Mm-hmm. But to really grow, you need to stretch your educational field. You need to travel all over the world to see all these different cultures and how they look at life, which is radically different than your mother culture. Absolutely. And think of one example yourself about one culture that you really respect. Mm, I've learned a lot of things about the Indian culture that I really expect respect. And that's just helped your whole outlook on life and how you treat people. For sure. And so you just don't take a look at a foreign person and say, oh, they're a foreigner and I don't like them. You're looking deep, a lot deeper. Yeah, you understand where they're coming from a little bit more. So 
And rather than something being annoying, mm -hmm. you kind of love it. Yes. <laughs> and it helps you grow. Yeah. So one of the most important things I learned from my dad is that he was always an inventor, always an engineer looking for a better way to do things. And he kept his mind clear and sharp deep, deep into his 90s. All his peers were dead. <laughs> a lot of them were into Alzheimer's by the time they were in his 80s. And how do you think your dad kept his mind clean and sharp? That was because he was always mentally growing. He was okay. always striving to... He'd never settled into... He wasn't being an obedient servant to doing the job he was told. He was always thinking, okay, this is how things are done, how can I make it better? Okay. And always listening deep to political conversations of what are they saying, what are they hiding, what are they trying to propagate that is really beneficial. So he's always analyzing and thinking outside the box. And that's hugely important. So by traveling to foreign countries and seeing how different people look at life, it's hugely beneficial. And taking what has been done and thinking outside the box and how to make it better, take a look at my generation, what has actually been done, you know. You can imagine the faith that Bill Gates' parents had to have in him. Here they've spent all this money to send him to really good schools. He's about to graduate from one of America's best schools. And he drops out. Hmm. And he's going to start a company called What? Doing What? Well, of course, now it really makes sense, the internet. But you talk about the time, nobody even heard about it. It was just a rough concept. Right. So this is the kind of creative energy that makes the world a better place. What cultures have a really increased your awareness or, or touched you? Well, first, the Hawaiian culture. I came over here first with my family when I was 10 years old. Okay. And there were hardly any tourists at that time. And my mother had um, worked out camping permits on the Big Island and on Molokai and Maui and... Oahu. What year was that? 1965. And so in 65, the tourist culture was pretty much limited to Waikiki Beach. <laughs> okay. It hadn't hit most of the other islands. And you came out here as a family to camp. And we came to camp, so we'd come to the parks, and there were no white faces. We were the only howlies. And we, my mother could sing like an angel. And the Hawaiian music was awesome. And so my early memories of Hawaii is the Hawaiians singing around and my mom joining in and we being accepted as family. And by the time I came back by myself in 85, 20 years later, the Hawaiians were quite resentful of the tourism exploitation. It's just, yeah. I mean, it, it's a long, long history, you know, about statehood and the whole bit. But... I could really feel the difference that the Hawaiian kids weren't singing that much. Mm. You know, there was just this, but it was still there. And I respected that. I just expected it to be there. And I started to look for it, you know. Yeah. Um, so I felt very at home here. 
and I had yeah. in the early years of coming over here for winters I had my all my gear stolen once and I went to the police and reported it and they kind of ho-hummed and then I asked where the local kahuna was and people looked at me and he says you're not going to even step foot on there and I says no I'm not I'm going to go up to the gate and I'm going to ask politely that's their culture that's the way they do things and they'll take care of me and they did within two days they had my gear back wow and I've always felt that they're looking after me and this is you know that was in the 80s and so that's one example another one would be in New Zealand where some folks of the World War II generation took me in and in American Indian culture it would be father and mother by choice okay they really t looked after me and they knew the American culture was in a hurry and out of control and they just got me to mellow out and slow down and uh, I knew how to use an axe from Boy Scouts and my father pioneering lightweight backpacking I think I got it my coming-of-age present was a little hatchet, you know. Cool. Um, so I thought I knew how to use an axe, but Lionel was a master. And he just set me up with this tea tree, which is hard wood, right? Yeah. You hit it at 90 degrees, the axe bounces off. you got to hit it right at 45. And you know, about partway through this project, I said, I can just go buy a chainsaw and do this in an hour. I'll be done with it. And he, <laughs> he says, that's not the point. The idea is to focus your mind very sharply in it very exactly and have the physical exercise of taking out all the energy on cutting up the wood. Yeah. And it was brilliant. It's just so healing. And I went back year after year because it was one of the best beaches in the world to run on. And these folks just took care of me and they taught me all these wonderful life lessons about life being simpler and richer. You know, the more luxurious stuff you have sports cars and fancy houses and the further you away from the earth and that got pushed to the extreme when I met some of the girls back at Kalalau and they were saying that, you know you don't need all that stuff and you can imagine the simplicity of just living very close to the earth and drawing energy to the, from the earth that's very healing and very peaceful yeah and it's not polluted by makeup and fancy dresses. It's nurtured by these wonderful glowing smiles that just are beautifully healing. So that's this really rich sense of community that you look for and build. And you see this, you pick little pieces all around the world as you travel. You know, when you went to India, there were some really ugly things you saw children that were purposely named to beg. It's just horrible. Yeah. The idea of untouchables, these people in rags and the people that flaunt their silks and being overweight. But you still met people that were absolutely wonderful, that really looked after you and took care of you. Yeah. And that's what you take home. Yeah. And you don't get pushed away just because there are some ugly things in each culture. Yeah. But what am I going to learn and what am I going to help me grow? And what's going to continually help my mind to expand. Absolutely. Those two cultures, the Hawaiian culture and New Zealand culture, how that affected you, that's really profound. Yeah, I'm really grateful for you sharing that. Yeah, you, you, have, you pick up things from the Australian culture, which is 
very hearty and much more like the Americans. Uh-huh. It has its own just intense edge, which is really fun to be around. Mm-hmm. And uh, the French, I don't know what it is, but I've met all these wonderful women from France. And so you have all these different places you've gone to, you know, up in Norway or down in the tropics in the Cook Islands or here in Hawaii. And just realize that there's all these wonderful people around the world. And they're all looking at the through from their mother cultures that are different than you. And then if you're willing to learn, it's just such a rich planet to live on. Yeah. And if you look at the commercial news where if it bleeds, it leads, it's also really, really boring. Because they're not trying to propagate any wonderful sense of healing energy. Yeah. Of nurturing energy, of taking care of each other and making the place. And creating new things. Yes. Being creative and uh, inspiring. Yeah, I think your idea of inspiration is absolutely critical. Because if we're inspired, then we're alive. Yeah. And you see this in old people's homes where they have money to burn and they're bored out of their mind. Yeah. They're living in places which are literally like five stars hotels. They have wonderful food and they walk around in their walkers and you have too much money and you have too little inspiration. Yeah. And it's very hard for somebody to maintain their inspiration when they've had a lot of social success and a lot of financial success because you start to get hit upon by so many people always begging for money very politely but I don't know what it is about religions and politics but regardless of how much money you give them they always want more (laughs) and it just becomes a shell that you have to erect to protect you against this total nagging. So you just kind of disappear from that whole social scene. So sometimes it's uh, the difficult mm-hmm. things that we come up against that mm-hmm. we then find inspiration to get through them. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's some difficult thing you've gone through in your life that's brought you to where you are? Is there anything in particular? that comes to mind well one to share of course there's some that you're never going to share because they're just too deep very very personal sure but um, I had a high school running coach who was very authoritarian and verbally abusive from my point of view Mm -hmm. within the culture you know it would probably be in sports coaches of that day accepted but never tolerated now, Okay. fortunately. <laughs> the idea of hazing and all that stuff um, is not allowed yeah. in the Nathan Hale team. It was tried my, I think my second year, they tried to haze one of the athletes, and I got an email from his mother, and I said, I will, you know, I wasn't at practice that day. I said, I'm going down right now and I'll get this sorted out. By the time I got down there, the head coach, who had already sorted it out. But I went through this 
and there was a lot of ghosts in the high school because of so much negativity that way. Just getting screamed at, don't think. A lot of ghosts. A lot of ghosts and meaning, that a lot of bad memories. Oh, okay. Very you had a memories. lot of painful memories. And so to go to that same, back to that same field and see a football coach, make sure that there was no negativity within the other coaches. Some of the coaches left because he would, he would not allow it anymore. Okay. Um, this was 2012 when the NFL uh, invited Hoot to come to a camp about taking better care of players. And I think he was the only one in Washington State who was invited. And he came back and he says, I don't care if we leave, lose every game this season, we're implementing this. And it was such a wonderful relief from the pain that I went through as an athlete of being all this... To this day, I don't like to be called by my last name because I can hear this coach screaming at me about, don't think Johnson. You know, just, I see. It was, you know, you're there to learn. Yeah. <laughs> so. And now you're there teaching these boys to stop and think, stop and feel. <laughs> yeah. So it's, and after I had gone through this experience, I was, I went to North Seattle Community College. I was in student government and there was this flyer that came through about this Australian coach, Percy Sarity, coming to the United States. And one of the, my friends handed it to me. And you know you kind of you can picture vividly every single sensation of that moment? I can remember handing that flyer to me, which would change my life. And I got to train under the very best coach in the world who was into nurturing character first. And yes, all these world record holders came through his um, camp, but he nurtured people first, just as who um, nurtures people first. Just as who? The football coach, Hoover okay. Hopkins. His okay. nickname's Hoot. Okay, Hoot. And so um, it just gives you this full circle of, yes, there have been very, very painful times. Uh, girlfriends who turned your whole peripheral vision black, you know? It just, whole world falls out from under you emotionally. And then you look back, well, that's the road I don't want to go. And then you meet these absolutely wonderful women who take care of you and nurture you. And you say, that's where I want to go. So yes, sometimes you have very painful experiences and while you're in them, it's the world just looks dark. Yeah. But they give you a perspective of, okay, that's what I don't want to be like. Yeah. And um, so whereas I don't really want to have to experience another coach like my high school running coach, I realized that in his day and in his time, he was very successful and well-respected amongst other coaches because that's what they were all doing. But you don't treat people like that now because the world's gotten to be a better place. Yeah. And I'm sure there's some that are still trying to hang on to that authoritarian frame of be obedient and follow orders. Yes. It's going to die out because it doesn't work. <laughs> yeah. And it doesn't work. It it dies out a lot because of the generation of what Steve and Bill and I all contributed to make the world a better place. Because we shared information. Not maybe everything, 
but there was this incredible change of saying that I work for this company and all the information and knowledge belongs to the company. Whereas in software developers, if I had a problem, I posted it on the web. Mm -hmm. And yeah. somebody who was not in their spare time, without charging, answered my question for free. Yeah. That is pretty awesome how that's in that community so prevalently. And that changed the world because it opened the doors for sharing. Now, there's a lot of animosity between some of the business community as far as software goes. Sure. But deep down, there's this major shift in how you look at the world. And Bill has done some great things. Steve, while he was alive, did some wonderful things. Yeah, we all made a lot of mistakes. <laughs> There's a lot of things I wish I could take back. A lot of apologies I need to make. But I also helped a lot of people. And still did Steve and still did Bill. And so there's this sense of a changing of the guard. And there's still, yeah, you can take a clue political leaders at the moment and say, you know, it's, you've got a mess on your hands. But they're all going to be dead soon. <laughs> yeah. This is one of the things you learn about getting older, you know. You're not here forever. And those folks will have to, for, you know, they'll be forced into retirement. They, there is a very desperate sense of we need to take care of this planet. Yeah. That the youth of today are so much smarter than my generation, <laughs> you know. And they really don't have a choice. Either they make sure the planet gets taken care of or they won't have a planet to live on. Yeah. So it's really wonderful to have lived long enough to actually see this shift start to take hold. And um, we've got a long way to go, you know. Right. You can see this in the current campaign. Jay Eastley stepped up and said that we really have to take care of our planet, but he couldn't gain any political traction. He had the, all the powers of the political frame, whether they were reactionary or, quote, progressive, that were scared by what he was really proposing, the new economy. But that economy has got to come if we're going to have a planet. But he at least put the first step forward. You know, this is where we need to go and left behind... What's his name? Jay Easley. Jay Easley. He's done a lot of really good things for Washington State and made it a very progressive place to live hmm. and really helped the economy that way. And yeah, he's made some mistakes, but as far as I'm concerned, he's been a really good role model for politicians of how to be a lot better. And a lot of that has to do with a really deep spiritual family that he's got to work with. Mm -hmm. I know his grandmother, pardon me, it would be his, um, his wife's mother from church. And there you have this wonderful sense of nurturing healing. And she's actually, you know, the one that suggested he get into politics. So there are all these little connections, you know. Let me know the grandmothers who are the healers, and they're going to make the world a better place. Yeah. You see this in Bill Gates. He had a wonderful nurturing healing grandmother who took care of him. And I had that same experience. I met all these wonderful healers around the world that have had that. Yeah, 
who was your grandma? <laughs> so this is really the core of it, you know. It's this nurturing energy. It's not coming from the egotistical military male frame. It's coming from the very nurturing grandmother frame. And as the world shifts towards that and we start taking care of this planet and taking care of each other, then we're going to have a lot more wonderful climate to live in, both as far as physical and mental goes. Yeah, it's very true. Yeah. So. I think grandfathers can be just as nurturing, <laughs> but it's, uh, it's that aspect where yeah. we have to learn to nurture each other, nurture mm -hmm. the earth, and we can do that in yeah. a lot of ways. Yeah, it takes a very strong man to be nurturing because it's not, you know, with our mother culture, it's not respected. It's not, but I think it's, uh, if we dig deep enough in our hearts, we find it. Oh, yes. You know, it's there. Yeah. And that's why it takes more strength for a man because you have to mm -hmm. stand up against the cultural yeah. <laughs> mindset that's there and dig deep and into what's actually in your heart and be true to it. Yeah, and when you do, you'll find the women love you. Sure. <laughs> Makes a life woman up. loves a man that's found his heart. Yeah, so it's very, very rich in finding that sense of balance. Yeah. And makes life a whole lot more wonderful. Yeah. So. Well, Jay, it's been a delight to camp in your proximity here at Anini. Um, it's been a, a beautiful time. Yeah, and it's been wonderful to get to see new generation start to really make this shift so thank you yeah you're welcome i have one last question mm -hmm. how can you describe what snorkeling was like back when you snorkeled here oh it was a like, long time ago this would be 1965 okay. it was all this beautiful coral and because i went out there today and it was mostly brown yeah. there's a little bit of coral well, the good news is a little bit of the coral has started to come back. But I had these wonderful childhood memories in 65 of diving and seeing these beautiful clusters of coral. It's everywhere? Everywhere. Everywhere. And then I had that same experience in this, like, 74 in Tahiti. Okay. And, of course, the Great Barrier Reef. And when I came back here in 85, I was all excited. I jumped in the water, and it was all the corals dead. Dang. And saw a few fish, but it was like ghost towns, okay. graveyard. And now around the world, we just have a lot of dead coral. And the good news is a little bit of it's coming back, but it's a good example of just not taking care of the planet. And well, I'm too going to take that little bit of good news. Yeah. <laughs> a little bit's coming back. I saw a little bit out there. Yeah. So um, little bunches of coral, and I was grateful. Yeah. There was a lot of brown. It looked like dead coral, and mm -hmm. I assume there was a lot of dead coral, but there was mm -hmm. some live stuff. So. Yeah. Okay. So awesome. if we don't see a whole lot of little things, you just have to realize that there's all these incredibly brilliant young people that aren't making a huge splash yet, but they're there. And 
it's so encouraging to me to see the level of intelligence just go right through the roof because they have access to so much more knowledge than we have. They have their ability to connect with each other around the world. You know, we had telephones when I was growing up, and now you've got the internet and social networks, yeah. which are incredible. And the more we learn to leverage that and use yeah. it for good, yeah, that's powerful. So, yeah. You're going to be able to share this with all these people. And in my generation, it just wasn't there. Yeah. So it just makes the world a better place. Yeah. Thanks, Jay. That's it for this episode of the People Around Town Community Podcast. Thank you for taking the time to listen. Feel free to subscribe on iTunes, love it, leave a review, or go to peoplearoundtown.com and leave a comment. I would love to hear from you. Have an awesome day.